To start out today, I just want to point out that when Paul the Apostle descended upon the city of Corinth in his ministry, he boldly and simply preached the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what he said when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in our passage today, we are going to observe just that, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a stunning event, one we will continue to mine at our Good Friday service this week and at every gathering of our church until Jesus returns. Christianity, you see, is not centered upon tenets or doctrines or beliefs or behaviors, but on the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these events lead to tenets and doctrines and beliefs and behaviors, but the events are the starting place. Without Jesus' cross, there is no Christianity. Without Jesus' resurrection, there is no hope. So today, to borrow from the 18th century hymn writer Isaac Watts, we will survey the wondrous cross by asking a simple question. Why was Jesus crucified? And our text is going to provide some great answers for us. And here's the first one. Number one, Jesus was crucified to fulfill God's plan, to fulfill God's plan. Let's start reading in verse 16. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now in this first movement, mockery is definitely the theme. And after Pilate's decision, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and Jesus is flogging a full battalion of soldiers, hundreds of soldiers, in other words, gathered together to hail the supposed king of the Jews. They put royal colors on Jesus' back with that purple cloak. They put a crown of thorns that they'd made on his head. And Matthew's gospel tells us that they put a fake scepter in his hand, likely the reed that Mark tells us that they beat him with. And to complete the demonstration, they bowed and they spat on this king. Little did they know that as they mocked this supposed king, they were mocking the true king. Jesus, of course, is the royal of royals. And because he was crowned with thorns, thorns which the earth began to yield only because of mankind's sin, Jesus will one day be crowned with glory and honor and power forever. But the story goes on. It says in verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, this is a fascinating little verse. The crucifixion routine that the Romans had developed was down to a science. They used it as a major intimidation tool over the nations that they had subjugated. So when they crucified someone, the Romans were sure to get their money's worth. 
And one thing they did to get their money's worth was take a long route to the site of crucifixion, forcing the condemned person to carry their crossbeam. The upright post of the cross was permanently fixed at the crucifixion site, but the horizontal beam, which could have weighed around 100 pounds, had to be carried by the convicted criminal. And as they carried their crossbeam, surrounded by a four-man Roman death squad, they took the long way, the long path to their death. They traversed every side street, every forgotten alleyway in an attempt to preach the message of Rome's power. Now Mark tells us that as they journeyed, they compelled a man named Simon to carry Jesus' cross. He was from the northern African community of Cyrene. He was a Jewish pilgrim from a faraway land. This might have been his one Passover in Jerusalem. It would have been a dream come true for this man. Now, Roman soldiers, they could require Rome's subjects to carry a load for them. So when the crucifixion squad saw that Jesus's body was too weak to carry the crossbeam, they compelled Simon. But what appeared as an annoying inconvenience to Simon, a disruption to his dream vacation, ended up as the greatest blessing of his life. Mark, in this little verse, calls Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, indicating that the Roman church knew of both of these figures. From this, we can deduce that something powerful happened to Simon that day. Up close and personal with the suffering Savior, Simon submitted his life to Christ and eventually led his sons into the faith. You know, it just makes me wonder how often we are interrupted and inconvenienced for Christ, but in ways that are good for our souls. How often does he allow divine interruption to align us with his will? But the story continues. It says in verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now, in this little passage, we actually get our church's name. The Latin word skull is where we get the name Calvary. And Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, which meant the place of the skulls. Calvary, or the place of the skull, is where Jesus was crucified. I think it's a rather punk rock name for a church, if you ask me. The, the place of the skull. Now, some think that the hill itself was shaped like a skull, and others think that they allowed the bodies of those crucified to be picked off by birds of prey over the years or over the weeks and days after crucifixion so that many skulls littered the hillside. Now, history tells us that groups of women would mercifully bring a pain-numbing concoction to those who were being crucified. And while Jesus was on his cross, the text tells us, that group of women offered Jesus a drink. It would have decreased his pain, and so Jesus refused it. He embraced the pain. Rather than drink their wine and myrrh combination, he would drink the full cup of God's judgment. But let's read on. In verse 25, it says, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, 
the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. It was the third hour, it says, when they crucified Jesus, which means that it was nine o'clock in the morning. They had to post a criminal charge against Jesus, against people that they crucified. So they made a sign that said that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was crucified for the fable of insurrection, trying to be a king over Caesar. And it says in verse 27 that two robbers were crucified flanking him to his right and left as a fulfillment of the scriptures. But the first thing that I told you is that all of this was done to fulfill God's plan. Much of what we've read and will read today points to various prophecies from the Old Testament. They crucified Jesus because Psalm 22 said that they would kill him by piercing his hands and his feet. He was crucified between two criminals because Isaiah 53 said he would be counted among the rebels. He was offered drinks while on the cross because Psalm 69 said that they would do so. The soldiers rolled dice for his clothing because Psalm 22 said that they would divide his garments by casting lots. Later in our passage, people will challenge Jesus to come down from the cross because Psalm 22 also prophesied that people would challenge him to deliver himself by God's power while on the cross. As we'll see in a moment, the sun would darken during Jesus' death because Amos had said that the sun would go down at noon on the day that Messiah died. And he would be buried, we'll see in this passage, by a wealthy man because Isaiah 53 said that he would be buried with the rich in his death. And all this is meant to help us recall that Jesus was fulfilling God's plan when he went to the cross. Immediately after our forefather Adam introduced sin to our species, God told Satan that he would put enmity between Satan and the woman, between Satan's offspring and her offspring, and that her offspring would bruise Satan's head and that Satan would bruise his heel. It's a foreshadowing of the very cross itself. And that promise kicked off many promises over the years. Promises to Seth and to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, and to David. That one day the deliverer would come. And the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion help us know that Jesus is that promised figure. He was crucified to fulfill God's plan. But the second thing I want you to see today is that Jesus was crucified to save us. Number two, Jesus was crucified to save us. Let's read on in our passage, verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now here we have the derision and mockery of the crowds and the religious leaders towards Jesus. 
You know, Paul called Jesus' crucifixion a stumbling block. And here we see the reason why. How could the God of all flesh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ultimate sovereign, the judge of all people, be pinned naked to a Roman cross to suffer and die alone? And this was the sentiment of most of the people that were there that day. They challenged Jesus to save himself by coming down from the cross. The religious leaders said that Jesus saved others, but that he could not save himself. They wanted him to prove that he was the Christ by coming down from the cross so that they could, verse 32, see and believe. But if Jesus had come down from the cross to save himself, he could not save them. If Jesus rescued himself, he could not rescue you. If he'd been if he'd called upon legions of angels to destroy the seen and unseen authorities and powers of that day, we would still be bound by authorities and powers of our day. There would be nothing to see and believe if Jesus got off the cross. But praise be to God, he remained on the cross. He endured. And now we can see that cross and believe in his great name. You see, Jesus died to save us, not to save himself. Until you believe that humanity is in need of salvation, you'll have nothing to do with the real Jesus. You might like his example or miracles or a surface understanding of his teachings, but you won't like the cross. And the cross is why he came. He came to save. You see, mankind is dead in trespasses and sins, lost and wandering from God's original intentions and blinded to the truth regarding God, ourselves, and our destiny. We are eternally separated from God by our sinful imperfection because he is sinless and perfect. And due to all this, our destiny is fraught with danger and peril. We are doomed. So Jesus came to save us from that doom from that looming destruction. He died so that he could save. We must trust in him. But a third thing I want you to see about why Jesus died is this. Jesus died, number three, to consume our darkness. To consume our darkness. Let's read about this in verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, Mark tells us that there were three hours of darkness while Jesus was on the cross. He'd been on the cross for three hours already, from nine in the morning until noon, when this darkness descended upon the land from noon until three o'clock. In the afternoon. Now, many have debated this darkness, excusing it as a solar eclipse or a dust storm. But a three hour solar eclipse, especially during the full moon of the Passover, is impossible. And a dust storm for three hours seems unlikely. It seems that God brought a supernatural darkness upon the land. He did this in the Old Testament in Egypt when he brought darkness in one of the plagues. And in the end times, in the book of Revelation, there is a moment where God brings darkness over the face of the earth. So it's not hard to imagine that he brought darkness upon the land 
Well, the son died on the cross. And this darkness, it fits the moment. When God brought the plagues upon Egypt in Exodus, darkness was the next to last plague, and it was followed by the Passover. Who died in the Passover? All the firstborn sons whose homes had no blood of the sacrificial lamb on their door. On this night, right before Jesus gave up his spirit, right before the firstborn son of God died, right before the lamb of God who was there to take away the sin of the world died, darkness came upon the land. You see, when Jesus cried out during that darkness, he was praying, he was stating the first sentence of Psalm 22. As I've already mentioned today, that was a messianic psalm about the cross. I think he was alerting his disciples to go read the rest of Psalm 22. In it, they would find the specific details of Jesus' crucifixion predicted in a bygone era, and it would have encouraged them that God was in control. But Jesus was not only quoting Psalm 22, but praying Psalm 22. The words of the psalm perfectly captured his experience and feelings in that moment. For all of eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit had danced in unison and unity. Love flowed, joy enveloped, the rhythm of heaven was one of oneness. But now that oneness is no more. Abruptly, enduring on the cross, the darkness of that day, Jesus felt alone, cut out of the dance. But why? Why was he cut out? Well, for you and for me. Jesus was betrayed in the dark. His trials were in the dark. And now we see his cross occurred in the dark. And Jesus was consuming our darkness when he experienced that darkness. For the first and only time, he was separated from the Father God so that God could become our Father. The Bible often alludes to hell as a place of darkness, complete and total darkness. And Jesus, on the cross, consumed our hell so he could bring us to his heaven. He took our darkness so we could be transferred to God's light. Jesus died to consume our darkness. But a fourth thing I want you to see is that Jesus died so that he could make access to God, so that he could make access for us to God. Let's read in verse 35. It says, And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, some of the bystanders who were there that day, they heard Jesus's cry. And Mark tells us that they wondered aloud if Jesus was calling for Elijah when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. So they gave Jesus some sour wine to 
refresh him, hoping that this would prolong his life long enough to see another supernatural manifestation come from his life, Elijah showing up. With that, Jesus uttered a loud cry. John's gospel tells us that when Jesus uttered that loud cry, he shouted, it is finished. Then Mark says, Jesus breathed his last. And Mark is careful to record some phenomena that surrounded Jesus' death. And I want to focus on two of them that are found in this movement. First, the veil in the temple, Mark says, was torn from top to bottom. Second, the Roman centurion who was in charge that day, seeing the way that Jesus died, said, truly, this man was the son of God. This triumphant declaration is the point to which Mark has driven his gospel. He started his book by saying that Jesus is the Son of God. But all through the book, no humans have confessed Jesus as God's Son. During Jesus' trial, the religious leaders asked Jesus if he was God's Son, and Jesus said that he was. And even demons throughout the book have made this connection throughout the Gospel of Mark. But up to this point, point, Mark records no other human saying, Jesus is God's Son. But now, of all people on the face of the earth in Israel at that time, a Roman military official confesses Jesus as the Son of God. The Jewish religious leaders might have crucified him for saying he was God's Son, But the Gentile warrior confessed Jesus as God's son. They were blind, but he saw. That is what the rending of the temple curtain is all about. That curtain signified separation. An elaborate system of sacrifices and ceremonies had been erected under God's direction as a way for the world to learn that God is holy and cannot be approached with sin on our hands. Our sin separated us from him. But when Jesus died, the veil was torn. Now even a Gentile centurion can come to God through Christ. Jesus' death made a way for this man. And every man and every woman, every background, every nationality, and any other marker that humanity normally divides over, Jesus made a way for all of us to come to God. Jesus' death makes the way for us to God. Jesus died to make access to God. But number five, Jesus died to experience death for us. Let's read of this in verse 40 and following. It says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now this little paragraph, it's Mark's way of setting us up for the resurrection. Because these women will see Jesus' empty grave. They'll witness his resurrection. But he's also here to tell us that this is his source material. These women were at the cross that day. And they would go to the empty tomb on Sunday morning. He got his report from them. And Mark says that there were many other women who were there, but he mentioned three by name. One was Mary Magdalene, which means that she was 
a woman named Mary from a village called Magdala on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had set her free, Luke's gospel tells us, from demonic oppression, and she devoted herself to Jesus ever since. A second woman that Mark mentions was named Mary. She's the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph. Her sons had become well-known in the early church, likely because of her teaching and her instruction. And a third woman was named Salome. The other Gospels tell us that she was married to Zebedee, who was the father of James and John, Jesus' disciples. And there are some scriptural indications that Salome might have been Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, which would have made her Jesus' aunt and John and James, Jesus' cousins. These women and many others followed Jesus and ministered to him. They were a big part of his ministry team, enabling him to focus on preaching, teaching, healing, and discipling. And they would be the first cluster of his followers to see him in his risen state. But the text goes on in verse 42. It says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now this closing little paragraph shows us a new follower of Christ, a man named Joseph. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And Luke tells us in his gospel that Joseph did not agree with the Sanhedrin's decision to kill Jesus. Mark tells us here in verse 43 that it took courage for Joseph to ask Pilate if he could bury Jesus' body. Uh, The Romans often left the crucified's body or carcass on the cross, so it was a bold move to ask Pilate to bend this protocol. And Joseph had also been a secret follower of Christ, and this move outed him as a man on Team Jesus. But Joseph made his move. And Pilate gave him permission to bury Jesus in a tomb that he owned, one that was cut out of the rock. And I don't want you to miss this aspect of Jesus' death. He was buried. He went into the grave. He did what billions have done before and what billions have done after him. He went down to death. Our Lord, our God, experienced humanity all the way to the point of humanity's gravest sorrow. He tasted death. He was embalmed and laid in a tomb. Our God died. Brothers and sisters, our Lord has gone before us to the grave. And in a sense, when Jesus did this, his death sanctifies death. Now, for believers, death is called sleep. 
We no longer have to be afraid or humiliated by death's decay, for our Lord has gone there before us. And death, as we see from Jesus, is not the final word. Jesus shows us the way to loosen death's grip. Its anchors were dropped, but now they've been cut loose by Jesus's resurrection. Death has lost its sting because of Jesus. He made the way to resurrection life. Jesus died to experience death for us. It just fascinates me how total and complete Jesus' identification with us is, that he went all the way to the point of burial. You could say, in a sense, that Jesus knows what it's like to be human more than you or more than me because he's gone all the way to the grave and beyond it, which is something you and I cannot yet say. But let me give you one last reason from this passage why Jesus died. Number six, Jesus died to make a new people. This reason is scattered throughout the text today. You know, in each scene, there are friends and foes of Jesus. Some people are against him and some people are for him. For every battalion who bludgeoned him, there's a Simon who carried his cross and became a devoted follower. For every crowd that ridiculed him while he was on the cross, there's a group of women who are there loving him. For every religious leader that was mocking him and telling him to come down from the cross to prove that he's the Christ, there's a Joseph, another religious leader, who's honoring Jesus. This is another reason that Jesus died, so that he could make a new people. Unfortunately, not everyone we know will come to love and follow Jesus, but this passage helps us see that some will. And Mark's audience, readers in first century Rome, but us as well, should conclude that we want to be on Team Simon, Team Mary's, Team Salome, or Team Joseph. We should expect hostility and pain and mockery because that's what our Lord endured. We should expect people on all sides to stumble over his cross because people have stumbled over the gospel for thousands of years. We should expect moments where we must take courage to demonstrate our allegiance to Jesus, like Joseph did, because sometimes our devotion to Christ will out us to colleagues and communities. But through it all, we're Jesus' people. He died to fulfill God's plan. He died to save us. He died to consume our darkness. He died to make access to God, and he died to experience death on our behalf. So he deserves our devotion and our dedication. Let's be the new people that he created by his blood.